Don't just ride the index, seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and welcome to The Exchange, a chaotic and historic 24 hours in Washington. The Senate and House did ultimately confirm Joe Biden's election as president after being disrupted for hours by riots. The White House issuing a statement on behalf of the president vowing an orderly transition. But Democratic Senate Leader Schumer among those calling for the president's removal today. We are expecting to hear from House Speaker Nancy Pelosi soon. That's been pushed back to about half past the hour. As for markets' reaction to all this, well, how about more record highs? We'll talk in a moment about some of the strong economic data that's been coming in lately and other factors that are pushing stocks up. But let's begin in Washington, where Kayla Tausche brings us the very latest this hour. Hi, Kayla. Hi, Kelly. Well, the calls from Democrats, at least, to invoke the 25th Amendment, which would force the departure of President Trump immediately. Those calls are growing. But within the administration, two senior Trump administration officials, one current, one former, both tell me that last night there were closely held conversations among cabinet staff as to whether to invoke the 25th Amendment, but that so far there's been no formalized movement within the cabinet to proceed. And also doubts about whether there would in fact be eight cabinet secretaries uh, to support this effort, as would be needed to put it into effect. Earlier today, we got the first cabinet level comment addressing this issue from the Secretary of Agriculture, Sonny Perdue. He was speaking to reporters on the ground in Georgia, where he's been this week. And when he was asked about whether he's had contact with his colleagues about this issue, he said no, but it was a good question. It's a good question. The 25th Amendment, uh, I have not. I've had no contact with other cabinet members in that area, nor do I expect to have any. I know people have, uh, some people have issued their resignations, which, again, is their prerogative. The resignations do continue at the highest level departures from the Trump administration since yesterday. Uh, just coming today, you have the deputy national security advisor, Matt Pottinger, who uh, is leaving. That was announced by his boss, the national security advisor. He, along with the U.S. trade representative, led China policy. You also have the Washington Post and the New York Times reporting that the White House's chief economist, Tyler Goodspeed, is also leaving. Add to that uh, multiple mid-level staffers from the press office, uh, and there is quite a a high number of uh, individuals who have chosen to leave the White House, even though their departure was impending just a couple of weeks from now. As for what happens on the legal front, Kelly, uh, the D.C. police chief, the chief of the Metropolitan Police, said that there were 68 people arrested in conjunction with the events at the Capitol yesterday. And federal law enforcement officials say that we should expect uh, criminal charges to come as soon as today, although one official tells me that uh, it is still possible that President Trump, if he would like, could choose to pardon those individuals. Kelly? A lot of focus on invoking that 25th Amendment, Caleb, but also we're hearing, was it Schumer who said, if not that, then impeachment? 
Uh, Schumer and also some Republicans on the Hill, Kelly, uh, Adam Kinzinger, who's a Republican in the House of Representatives earlier today, uh, suggested uh, the, the possibility of, of removing the president. Uh, and you also had Senator uh, Mitt Romney talking about the possibility of impeachment. But the general uh, feeling, Kelly, even among Republicans who have had a change of heart since the last time the president's impeachment was considered, have acknowledged that there's a pretty long procedure that would need to take place. And with uh, just less than two weeks before President Trump is set to leave office anyway, uh, that there are serious doubts about whether that process could actually uh, be completed in that time. And they just don't feel like it's a it's a uh, an effective use of time for the next couple of weeks. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Very, like you said, you got a cut, barely two weeks to go, and it certainly felt uh, as if it needed a lot longer than that in the past. But still, uh, we'll be hearing more about this, we expect, from perhaps Pelosi. Uh, we'll see if the president-elect himself addresses it. We could get a lot of commentary this hour. Kayla, thanks for now. Our Kayla Tausche in Washington. We mentioned that markets are shrugging off any concerns about chaos in Washington and jumping to new highs again today. Let's get right over to Dom Chu, who's following the action for us. Dom, what do you see? So, Kelly, you and Kayla were just talking about the feelings and, and what's happening right now sentiment-wise in Washington, D.C., well, that feeling is not translating into the markets. As you can see here, green across the board with records in many parts of the market right now. Specifically, I want to call your attention to the Nasdaq Composite, which traded above that 13,000 mark for the first time ever. So the Nasdaq, a huge focus there on a very record day for stocks overall. One big part of that stock story surge over the last several days, and certainly today, has been the financial sector. Interest rates are on the rise, especially the long-term ones, and the difference between long-term and short-term rates is the highest since the summer of 2017. That helps a lot of banks. And by the way, take a look at these two ETFs, the XLF and the KBE. Both of them track the banking or financial sectors. You can see here we are near some of the highest levels of the year, the past 12 months. And a lot of that surge has come in just the last week or two. And then check this out. Tesla shares hit a record high today. Elon Musk is the richest man in the world. But we used to talk about bubbles and say Bitcoin. Well, would it be surprising to show you right now that Tesla, you can see there, is now far and away a much bigger performance gainer over the course of the past year than Bitcoin? In fact, since the lows, Kelly, I will tell you, Tesla shares pre-pandemic since the pandemic lows in March is up over a thousand percent versus the over 800 percent modest gain in Bitcoin prices, just to give you an idea of how crazy some of these values have gotten. And by the way, Tesla before March, $70 billion market cap. It's $770 billion today. I'm looking at that little Bitcoin corner there, Don. We're less than $200 away from it crossing $40,000 for the first time. It's just remarkable. Holy cow. Uh, Don, we'll check back in with you shortly. Thank you, sir. Dom Chu. The transition of power in Washington is one factor that's been pushing markets and rates higher this week. There are rising expectations of $2,000 stimulus checks coming under a Democratic Congress, which Leader Schumer says will be a top priority. And this on top of already strong economic data from ISM manufacturing to services to booming consumer imports. Here to discuss the merits of more aid and the wild events of this week, I'm joined by Austin Goolsby. He's professor at the University of Chicago Booth School of Business. And Jason Furman is a professor of practice at the Harvard Kennedy School. Both have served as chairs of the Council of Economic Advisors under President Obama. Welcome to you both. And Jason, I wanted to jump in with you uh, at first on maybe some reservations that yourself, the likes of Larry Summers have had about the wisdom of $2,000 stimulus checks. But before we get into all of that, do you want to just react? I think Tyler Goodspeed just uh, stepped down from his uh, seat at the CEA. 
Yeah, I think Tyler Goodspeed did the good thing, right thing in resigning. And I think anyone who is not preserving the safety and security of our country um, could send a message by resigning at this point. Okay. Uh, in Austin, terms we'll of, give you a you know, chance in, to kind of comment. Is, yeah. Well, okay, Jason, go ahead. Oh, I was then going to answer your economic question, but uh, which is sure. that I think that the most important development for the economy this week was that the Democrats took the Senate. With that, you're going to get more upfront relief. You're going to get more longer-term rebuilding. That's going to be positive for economic growth. And so it's no surprise that markets are focusing on that development and positive development in the economy this week. But let me ask you, Jason, if you think that's the right move. I mean, what about what Larry Summers has said that, you know, $2,000 stimulus checks would really push household income dramatically higher next year? We already have checking accounts, even for the lower 25th uh, income percentile, higher than they were a year ago. We have excess consumer savings of maybe a trillion point six uh, that are going right now. I mean, you just heard from Chamath Palhapatia last hour some of the same figures about what's going on with the consumer. So is this the right move? I mean, my prioritization would be aid to state and local governments, more money for vaccines and testing, extending unemployment insurance, making sure we continue to have demand in 2022, 2023. I think all of those things are more important um, than the checks. I don't see a huge downside to the checks um, in terms of overheating. You'll just see a lot of the money get saved and the spending spread out over a longer period of time. Austin, one thing that has been interesting, if we go back, kind of wind the clock back to Tuesday, and even the fact that Democrats appear to have pulled out victories with those Senate seats in Georgia, is that you can kind of circle it back to the president himself. So, yes, you know, the most drama was yesterday on the Capitol. But uh, this has been something that actually has probably empowered the Democratic Party to be able to accomplish a lot more of their agenda than was thought, certainly after the initial results of the uh, vote back in November. That's kind of the delicious irony of this whole thing, is that the more President Trump has raged and shown himself to look almost deranged, uh, as he's done that, it has both emboldened the votes to give the Democrats the control of the Senate, and it has clearly put on the agenda what was the Democrats and uh, President-elect Joe Biden's platform of the campaign, which was stop the virus, restore the economy. And the President Trump's approach was, no, no, everything's fine. We j just pretend like, like it's going to go away by magic. So I do think you're 100% right that the, the agenda is now absolutely getting driven by the President-elect. But in a way, that's how it should be. I think the reason that the market hasn't, ha has not processed in a negative way the events of yesterday, as crazy as they were, is that they're fundamentally like, in 13 days, Trump is going to be out of there. Politics can go back to being boring. We're going to reestablish some trajectory uh, of getting control of the virus and going back to what we were doing before this whole mess began. 
And ironically, Austin, politics might get boring, but the markets are starting to act a little bit more interesting. And I'm not sure if it's in a good way. You know, yes, it's encouraging to see the 10-year yield back above 1%, inflation expectations above 2%, but these things are starting to spike a little bit. The Fed's already now kind of talking about whether it's going to have to start tapering. You know, you see what's going on with crypto prices. Everyone's watching the dollar a little bit nervously. And I guess that's what I mean. It's it's sort of, you could say politically, this current president has emboldened the Democratic Party, but is that platform one that they're going to be able to pursue, or do you think they're going to meet resistance uh, in doing too much? Well, I mean, if you're implying that there's a danger of runaway inflation, I guess I totally disagree. I think that that argument uh, that we better really watch out for the impact of inflation is one that the critics... The Democrats' critics have been saying since 2009, and we haven't seen that inflation. If we got inflation over 2%, that would be the first time that we actually hit the Fed's uh, inflation target in, what, 15 years? I mean, that, let's, let's dance a jig if we can get the inflation back to the, to the inflation target. Sure, but it's not me, Jason, that's talking about uh, tapering. It's Bostick. It's Raphael Bostick from the Atlanta Fed. You know, the Fed members themselves, we learned in the minutes yesterday, are already talking about, you know, taking the playbook from 2013. That was the taper tantrum. That saw the 10-year go from like 1.8 to over 3%. So they're cognizant already of the fact, look, the ISM manufacturing report for December was over 60. New orders were over 67. That was before the COVID package that just passed, not to mention what else might be coming down the pike. So it's not so much a question of runaway inflation as of the appropriateness of, of the next piece of what could now be, some uh, analysts think, another trillion-dollar stimulus package. Look, if we have an economic response that relies more on fiscal policy and less on monetary policy, that would be a good thing. You know, I remember when people were worried about all these asset purchases, worried that the Fed was distorting markets, worried that rates were too low for too long. All of that is what happens when you don't do enough on fiscal policy. If you do enough on fiscal policy and it turns out the Fed doesn't need to buy as many assets, great. That means um, you've done a good thing in rebalancing the macroeconomic response in a way that's both good for the macroeconomy but reduces some of um, the financial stability risks. I think they're small, um, but some of the risks you have associated with over-reliance on monetary policy. That's true. That's been their objective, and this may be the way of getting it uh, one way or the other. Jason Furman, Austin Goolsby, thank you guys both. Appreciate it today. Thank you. Coming up, it's politics and your portfolio. We're going to look at what the new administration with the Democratic Congress could do regarding different sectors of the economy. Plus, some bold moves from the social media companies over the past 24 hours. Facebook now banning the president from all of its platforms until he leaves office. Look at the implications there. Twitter shares, by the way, of down 2% after also making similar moves. And Bitcoin, oh my goodness, uh, just crossed over $40,000 for the first time. We were speaking with Dom Chu not 10 minutes ago when it was at 39800 and now we're already at 40158 The surge is just remarkable to watch. Bitcoin has doubled in just the past month. We'll keep a close eye on it. We're back right after this. Soon, all three chambers of government will be controlled by one party. Now the Democrats have taken both Georgia Senate seats. 
That could lead to policy changes across the economy. And here to discuss that, plus what investors should keep an eye on in the wake of yesterday's riots in D.C., let's welcome in Brian Gardner. He's the chief Washington policy strategist, policy strategist I'm sorry, at Stiefel. And Wardrick McNeil is managing director at Longview Global and a CNBC contributor. Welcome, Brian. I'll start with you. And can you just give us a sense for, as we wait to hear from Pelosi uh, and Biden this hour, possibly Lindsey Graham, you know, as Kayla alluded to earlier, there's only two weeks left to go with this president. But what should investors be watching in terms of possible outcomes here between now and then? There's a, obviously, there's a lot of scuttlebutt and speculation about whether Congress or administration officials will step in and remove the president in the waning days of the administration. Um, there is a lot of uh, judgment calls that have to be made here, especially by administration officials. Does, does any any move to remove the president make the situation worse, or does he represent such a threat to national security and to the peace and stability of the country that he's unfit to lead and has to be removed? That's not as, as you and I can sit here, but when you're a principal sitting in that seat, it's it's much more difficult. Um, you have to take into consideration the possible um, follow-up riots that could be worse, and 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 with two weeks, is it worth that price and that risk? Uh, on the Hill, I'm, I'm skeptical. As you noted in your last segment, there's not a lot, and Kelly noted, there's not a lot of time left. Congress needs a little bit more time to act. Um, it's one thing to have members of the opposition party weighing in. You really need senior Republicans to step in if, it, if this is going to be serious, because it has to go that quickly. And you can't do it quickly if Congress has any division whatsoever. It really has to be uh, a, a fully unified congressional action. Yeah, so it sounds like you're saying maybe don't expect um, any significant developments either way. Although DeWardrick, uh, it doesn't—it's not clear that markets would care. Do you think that's? A, do you think does that make sense to you that we've kind of just looked past this as we look towards the reaction? Our markets are much more focused on uh, some of the stronger signs coming from the economy, maybe fiscal stimulus coming down the pike again now. I think I think, Kelly, most of the market is looking forward to a Biden administration. And as you pointed out, when you control the House, the Senate and the White House, it means less gridlock in Washington, more predictability. We know now that who Biden nominates will likely be who he gets in his cabinet. And that level of predictability businesses like. I think they also are looking at the fact that we are going to see some form of stimulus some greater coordination between the federal and the state and local governments and perhaps some state and local government aid to deal with the pandemic. And I think that's that's all good news. Uh, There is an alternative uh, side to this, though, which is. Yes, please. Go go ahead. No, no, I want to hear the alternative. Yeah, I think we're going to have to pay for this. Right, Kelly. And so will there be some sort of a corporate tax rate adjustment to to pay for all of this? I think. When you when you look at that, so there's some pros and some cons, but I think the market is taking this in a very balanced way. So is gridlock good or bad? You know, it was one thing when it was, you know, hey, we've got basically a purple uh, Washington and nothing's going to happen. And now it's, well, we've got a blue Washington and stuff's going to happen, but we don't care. (laughs) Well, I think it depends on what you're trying to see done. I think a lot of people would like to see something done on infrastructure. Those those things have gotten gummed up when you have bills that sit in the Senate and can't get a can't get a hearing on the floor. Now, again, it doesn't mean the stuff is going to pass. It just means we will get a chance to see them come to the floor. They'll be debated. And if they pass, they'll be signed 
uh, by the president. So I think, you know, infrastructure, the green economy, I think those things are, are things that are, are going to move in a Biden administration that have been somewhat stuck over the last four years. Fair enough. And obviously, we've seen huge moves in some of these sectors like materials yesterday, some of those infrastructure plays. But, Brian, we've also heard that, you know, for the last four years and not much really changed. I'm curious what you think in terms we mentioned this, but kind of going through the different sectors of the economy. We've seen financials up big and interest rate prospects looking better. Um, Obviously, some niche areas like solar and cannabis jumping. What do you think investors should realistically be looking for opportunities in? I think opportunities and risk, both risk and opportunities, investors should be looking to the regulatory world, less the legislative world. I do believe um, that there is gridlock because it, be go- it goes beyond just that, the Senate flipping, but it's only 50-50. The House is, div- is closely divided. Getting things through Congress is going to be enormously difficult. And so more of the action is going to be at the regulatory level. So I think there's some risks in uh in the tech world and healthcare because of uh, increased antitrust scrutiny. I don't think there's a sea change coming in banking regulation, although for larger bank M&A deals, we may see things slow down a little bit and as uh, applications uh, get um, more strict or closer scrutiny. Um, so I think there's some regulatory risk, the energy sector too. Um, uh, I, I think um, kind of old energy, dirty energy, um, uh, is going to come under a closer mi- microscope. So there's regulatory risk. I'm not as convinced on, yep. on this reflation trade because somehow Congress is all, all of a sudden going to be able to pass uh, a, a reflationary type of spending agenda. Interesting that you don't think that's uh, as big of a prospect no. Uh, as maybe some others on Wall Street are starting to expect. Brian Gardner, DeWardrick McNeil, thank you both, guys. Thank you, Kelly. Thank we appreciate it talking us through the Washington agenda now. Coming up, world leaders reacting to yesterday's events on Capitol Hill. We'll look at the foreign fallout with former China ambassador and governor Gary Locke. And as we head to break, take a look at the semiconductor names, which are surging today amid this broader rally. NVIDIA, by the way, NVIDIA, not a bad Bitcoin play either with the exposure there. Bitcoin's above 40,000. NVIDIA's up nearly 5%. AMD, Applied Materials, Lamb, they're all up nicely as well. The exchange is back in a moment. Welcome back. Chaos? What chaos? The Dow, the S&P, the Nasdaq, the Russell, they're all hitting record highs today. The Nasdaq is having its best day in almost two years. It's up 2.3 percent. The Dow up 364. The highs were just up about 200 points at the moment. All this is the 10-year yield continues to climb as well, uh, touching around 1.08 percent today. Uh, just below a, a hair below that level right now. It only crossed back above 1% two days ago for the first time since last March. Take a look at the sectors, and it's pretty broad-based in terms of the rally today. Utilities and staples are lagging, but not by much. Uh, for more on all of these moves, let's bring in Michael Santoli. And, Mike, what's the message from the markets here? Well, I grant that it's kind of incongruous to see these unsettling scenes on television, never never been uh, witnessed before, and yet see the market not really uh, reprice itself uh, in response to that, although it was off its highs in the afternoon yesterday. I think it's a lesson in and what the market is built to do and what it evaluates, what it pays attention to. It's very willing to set aside things that don't feed into the direct economic, you know, interest rate, liquidity, trade flows, all those things that it's attempting to discount at every moment. Also, I think it's worth in this specific case uh, to talk about how nothing about the policy premises that investors had going into yesterday was really challenged by those events. If anything, over the course of it, as you heard people come out and respond to it, including Republican senators and Congress uh, people, 
they were actually condemning the activity. In other words, it seemed more likely than not uh, beforehand that the Electoral College vote was going to be accepted as ever. So therefore, you know, it, it was uneasy to watch, perhaps. But the market, like, I, I think you should start with the question, what should the market have been repricing during those events yesterday? What specifically? And it's hard to come up with it. And on that note, you know, there are other things that have been pushing us around as well. In other words, we've got the economic data that's been really pretty strong, especially for December, ISM manufacturing, ISM services, you know, new orders up. The trade deficit numbers today, I mean, that's actually a headwind for GDP, but it's because of strong consumer imports. So it, it feels like they're looking there. We're seeing inflation expectations rise. We're seeing the Fed now kind of talking a little bit about tapering bond purchases. And I mean, those are that that would all be a pretty big deal in a normal week. Right. So the, the bull case on the economy, the idea that we are set for an economic acceleration, perhaps even with some more fiscal support or activism down the road, it's all about us. So you're getting this reinforcement of that idea. That doesn't mean the market can't get ahead of itself on all these things. It doesn't mean that the market has it perfect. And there's a tremendous, as we keep talking about, speculative energy in this market that's essentially oblivious to anything real going on in the moment. It's all about tomorrow and expectations and some fast money. So all those things put together, it, it does leave it in a, a state of a bull market, perhaps in the process of building toward some extremes based on good fundamentals and a Federal Reserve that is just kind of letting the kids play as opposed to, you know, calling penalties right now. Yeah, absolutely. It's harder to call penalties. It's easier to let them play, but then yeah. it comes back to haunt you. Anyway, Mike, thank you. Okay. Uh, Mike Santoli back at HQ. Let's get over to Sue Herrera now for our CNBC News update. Hi, Sue. Hello, Kelly. Hello, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer is calling for President Trump's immediate removal from office. And soon we will hear what President-elect Biden and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi have to say about the Capitol riot. Biden is scheduled to introduce his Justice Department team, and Pelosi will be holding her weekly news conference. British Prime Minister Boris Johnson said today President Trump was, quote, completely wrong to cast doubt on the election. I un unreservedly uh, condemn uh, encouraging people to behave in the disgraceful way uh, that they did in the Capitol. And all I can say is I'm very pleased that the president-elect has now been uh, properly confirmed, duly confirmed uh, uh, in office and, uh, and that democracy has prevailed. And Czechoslovakia's prime minister has changed his longtime social media profile photo from a red hat modeled after Trump's MAGA cap to a photo of him wearing a COVID mask with the Czech flag. Andrzej Babis is among the world's leaders condemning yesterday's capital invasion by a pro-Trump mob. You are up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. Sue, thank you very, very much. Sue Herrera. Still ahead, Facebook and Instagram blocking President Trump for at least the next two weeks until the transfer of power is complete. Those details, the potential fallout and the precedent it sets coming up. But first, former Commerce Secretary and former Ambassador to China Gary Locke weighs in on what yesterday's events could mean for our relationship with China and our global standing. We're back in a couple. Welcome back. With yet more breaking news out of Washington, let's get right to Kayla Tausche. What's happening, Kayla? 
Well, Kelly, we've learned from two sources familiar with the matter that Transportation Secretary Elaine Chao is resigning from the Trump administration. Uh, we have confirmed this reporting, which was first reported by the Washington Post, uh, which cited a draft email that she is expected to send to Department of Transportation colleagues, where she cites yesterday's events at the Capitol as her reason for doing so. Uh, important to note, she is the spouse of Mitch McConnell, the Senate Majority Leader, who has issued a concurrent statement where he does not mention Chow's status with the administration, uh, but he does rue the events of yesterday. He says he salutes and applauds the frontline Capitol Police officer uh, and says the ultimate blame for the actions uh, yesterday are the unhinged criminals who broke down doors, trampled our nation's flag, and fought with law enforcement. So he is not mentioning President Trump by name. He is not mentioning his wife's resignation from the administration. But we have learned from two sources familiar with the matter that Chow is stepping down from her post running the Department of Transportation. Uh, and we will see whether we get more cabinet-level resignations to come after this. This is the first. Kelly? Yeah, Kayla, it's leading people to speculate, you know, do they leave because they wanted to, to pursue the 25th Amendment and others didn't or just, you know, in disgust and that sort of wasn't a factor either way? You know, who, it's, who knows at this point? Well, that's something that we're going to have to report out at this point. I mean, the information that I have about her departure is still very early. That being said, when I was in contact with senior administration officials about some of these uh, nascent conversations around the 25th Amendment, uh, she was one individual whose name was brought up as someone who, who might be interested in pursuing this path simply because of her position as a longtime member of the Republican establishment. She was the labor secretary under George W. Bush. Her husband, of course, has served in the Capitol uh, for many decades and was present there at yesterday's events. Uh, so she is someone who uh, not only has been serving through multiple administrations, uh, but who also for, for whom also the events of yesterday hit home quite literally. Yep. Kayla, thank you. Uh, Kayla Tausche with the latest there. The storming of the U.S. Capitol is the lead story around the world. With our allies expressing shock at the scenes, China is mocking the U.S. government and contrasting it to the protests in Hong Kong. Will yesterday's events hurt U.S. diplomacy, especially in our negotiations with China? Joining me now is Gary Locke, interim president of Bellevue College. He was the former Commerce Secretary and ambassador to China under President Obama and governor of Washington. So I'll Call you governor if that's all right. Welcome. And uh, China did, does seem to relish this moment. Is it going to have a longer lasting impact, do you think? I think this uh, deplorable, shocking scene is going to have huge ramifications for the United States in terms of our image abroad and our influence, not just in Asia and with China, but with so many countries around the world. Uh, for, for so long, we have always been preaching to other countries to uphold the rule of law, uh, to uh, uh, allow governments to transfer power after an election, to make sure that the military doesn't step in and overthrow governments because they didn't like the election. And yet now we have all these other countries around the world that you've already reported on expressing concern about what has happened in America, urging Americans mm -hmm. to observe the rule of law and to respect uh, the peaceful transfer of power and abide by the elections. They're now preaching to us. So China is laughing at us and saying, we're not the, the model of democracy and of civility and of stability that we have always been lecturing the rest of the world uh, to uh, embrace. And quite frankly, it empowers China and in, in 
elevates its influence, especially as it's trying to provide economic aid, assistance, uh, military aid, and, and even foreign policy initiatives to the rest of the world. And that's what is most distressing uh, in terms of the ramifications right. of what we saw yesterday. You know, that said, this president is leaving in two weeks, Governor, and the rest of the world is clearly looking towards what a Biden-led U.S. is going to look like. And perhaps the biggest challenge for the next president is whether he is going to be ultimately appeasing, uh, I would call them rivals like China, uh, by sort of doing what the rest of the world uh, would prefer in terms of you know, coming to a consensus and our dealings, uh, maybe softening the tone a little bit and all of that kind of thing. Or if that ends up being a more powerful way of negotiating, kind of tilting the power balance back uh, towards the West, it's going to be a difficult balance for him to strike, don't you think? Well, certainly American government and American businesses and American workers have long uh, had grievances about the trade and economic policies of China. They are not following of their promises when they join the WTO, they're not following international rules. And so these concerns that America has are very, very legitimate. But the Trump policy or approach strategy has backfired. It has not, uh, it, it has not caused China to change any of their policies that we're very upset about, whether it's rule of law, uh, uh, theft of intellectual property, um, unfair uh, trade policies and, and unfair government subsidies toward their businesses. At the same time, American consumers, because of the tariffs on all Chinese goods coming into the United States, has cost the American household on average, according to the New York Fed and even Wall Street Journal and many other publications, $800 to $1,000 more per family per year. At the same time, our allies, who are now supplying these products to China, and, and those European products are not facing tariffs imposed by China. So the goods from European countries and our allies are actually cheaper compared to the American goods, which means that our competitors, our allies, are actually reaping the benefits of this trade war. And yet they have the yeah. same concerns about China's economic and trade policies. So I think under a Biden administration, you're going to see focus on these grievances that American companies and the government have long had worldwide concerns. But we're going to do it in concert, yeah. in collaboration with our allies so that we're a united front, so that we're not suffering while our allies and the companies of our allies actually benefit. No, we were reminded again this morning uh, just how much the trade balance is deteriorating. Governor Locke, thank you. We'll leave it there for now. Appreciate your time today. Uh, former governor and ambassador to China. Still ahead, Elevation Partners Roger McNamee had strong words for the likes of Facebook and Twitter on Squawk Alley this morning, but he also said there's another tech giant responsible for sowing discord. YouTube literally does not engage in the controversies. They're just as big a contributor. I mean, maybe not quite as big as Facebook because you can't organize an insurrection on YouTube. But in, in terms of spreading disinformation and hate, YouTube is horrible. I find it astonishing that they've been able to dodge responsibility this long. Facebook and Instagram have blocked President Trump now from posting for the rest of his term. Will others follow suit? We will discuss that when the exchange continues. Stay with us. 
Welcome back to The Exchange. Facebook taking unprecedented action today, blocking President Trump's Facebook and Instagram accounts for the remainder of his term. In a statement, Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg saying, quote, we have allowed President Trump to use our platform consistent with our own rules, at times removing content or labeling his posts when they violate our policies. We did this because we believe that the public has a right to the broadest possible access to political speech, even controversial speech. But Zuckerberg said the current context is now fundamentally different, involving use of our platform to incite violent insurrection against a democratically elected government. Now, will these moves engender more controversy and what kind of precedent do they set? For more, let's bring in Chris Kelly. He's Facebook's first chief privacy officer and its former global head of policy and general counsel. And CNBC's own Julia Borson is with us as well. Uh, Chris, I'll start with you. Uh, what do you make of that? I mean, what is your knee-jerk reaction to banning a sitting president uh, for it, a couple of weeks? It's an extraordinary action. And the reasons that they are, cited for it. Yeah, it's an extraordinary action, but these are extraordinary times. I mean, I don't think we've ever faced a situation where, you know, the president of the United States is is advocating, effectively advocating armed insurrection against, you know, the Congress that's certifying the electoral vote that beat him. Um, and so it, it's, it's an extraordinary time to call for extraordinary measures. And so this is actually a measured response uh, to the situation that's been created by the president. So that said, do we have to worry about the precedent here or do you think it's such a unique situation that it's basically this is all as it relates to this president and this particular moment? And that's kind of going to be the last of it. This is a pretty, I mean, just the most extreme circumstance that you could ever imagine. And uh, the action that's been taken um, is, I think, measured to that. I do think that precedentially that, that it should be a principle going forward still that, that maybe there's a closer watch on the likelihood of uh, whether something would, would move into an, an armed insurrection. And, and obviously the, the harm policies that Facebook has articulated um, both publicly and, and that it holds privately in, in terms of the way that the policy enforcement works here are looking at that. And I think they will continue to look at that. Um, you know, this, the, the process of thinking that, that a president would ever stoop to the level that President Trump has um, has been hard for most Americans to wrap their minds around, you know, let alone uh, the Facebook policy apparatus. Julia, let's talk about YouTube for a moment. Uh, we just heard Roger McNamee saying that they should be considering similar moves and that they're as responsible uh, as other platforms here. YouTube has already kind of talked about a little bit about this, saying, you know, they, starting today, any channels posting new videos with false claims in violation of our policies will now re receive a strike and so forth. Are they going to be under more pressure? I do think all of these companies are going to be under more pressure, Kelly. And to, your, to the point of your last question, I think what's really important here is these are companies. They can set their own rules. They are not public utilities, though sometimes they may be regulated as such. They can set their own rules. And what's important is that they show that they enforce those rules consistently. What they're showing here with this move or what Facebook is showing here with this move today is that President Trump is so much in violation of its rules that they believe this is a necessary step in order to secure the safety of the platform. So what I think we're going to see going forward is perhaps more pressure on these companies um, to make sure they're enforcing the rules fully. It's very hard in whack-a-mole situations to pull down content 
instantaneously. YouTube, Twitter, Facebook have all, you know, instituted various, you know, algorithmic things and artificial intelligence to be able to instantly identify offensive content. But at the end of the day, Kelly, it is very hard to enforce that. And I think they're just going to be under more pressure to do so. And I think YouTube will come under more scrutiny. And Kelly, it's because it's not just about the organization of things like the riot we saw yesterday, but also the spread of information that can incite that kind of behavior. The language from Senator Warner, Chris, is pretty strong here. He says, I have continually said these platforms have served as core organizing infrastructure for violent far-right groups and militia movements, helping them recruit, organize, coordinate, and in many cases, and he says, with respect to YouTube, generate profits from their violent extremist content. So what's the next step there uh, for those who would say that they do play a role uh, some might say they're unfairly being blamed for everything that occurred, but if they did and do actively play a role in these issues. A lot of this is about enforcement at the end of the day, that, that in many cases the sites have the right policies and have articulated them over time and striking the balance between allowing for pretty extensive political speech and wide, robust, open debate um, and and the, the move to you know, violent insurrection can sometimes unfortunately be quite a, quite a thin line. You know, American constitutional law and American First Amendment law has tried to draw those lines very carefully over time. And I know that Facebook has been inspired by that. Um, this, w- when it moves directly into action, though, um, the enforcement actually becomes somewhat easier. Uh, Facebook and Twitter and, and YouTube and Google have, have been trying to develop more and more um, technology to address this harmful content uh, early on. And, and I think that they will continue to invest extraordinarily heavily in all of these things. I know that Facebook continues to, to, to be very focused on that. And you know, to, to yeah. say that look, the, the rules are clear and we have to focus on enforcement situations. And, and this was one where um, such an extraordinary action was taken um, even after the armed insurrection in the Capitol, you had, um, you had the president essentially defending uh, the, the the people who are taking action and and that that you know means that the, the danger for the remaining 14 days of his term was too great to allow him to use the platform you know julia all of that said it's uh, shares of facebook are up a couple percentage points today so they're shrugging it off but twitter it's a different story you know they are down slightly some analysts are saying you know removing someone like the president from their platform could be more damaging because uh, it's such a strong source of engagement so uh, is there a business risk here for these companies that, you know, the very point of their existence is undermined, not to mention, of course, the kind of earnings potential issues or profit margin pressures that all of them face if they have to continue ramping up enforcement and monitoring? Well, Kelly, I would just say that these companies have taken different tacks. Twitter said that if President Trump removed or deleted three tweets that broke its rules, that within 12, after 12 hours, he would be able to then start tweeting again. His account is blocked for 12 hours. That would indicate that President Trump, after his account deleted three tweets at roughly 3 a.m. this morning, sometime this afternoon, would have the ability to tweet again. The question, of course, is whether Twitter will then decide to follow in Facebook's footsteps and decide to extend the block on President Trump's account. So I think that it's just worth pointing out here that these companies are taking very different approaches as of this moment, and we'll see what other limitations um, Twitter decides to put on that account. YouTube is a different situation because people can share videos and reshare videos, um, but what we're talking about is really the direct voice of the president through Twitter. You've been listening to The Exchange. 
Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGM, a leading global asset manager.